Hello and welcome to another issue, issue, edition, episode, whatever, of the Dishcast. And this one's a, a one I've, I've really been looking forward to because it involves one of the writers I most revere in, in journalism, uh, who, whose style is as lucid as his research is exhaustive. And his last a couple of books just have really been stellar. One is uh, How to Change Your Mind, which I wrote about um, on the Weekly Dish. Actually, not the Weekly Dish, when I was back at New York in a piece called Just Say Yes to Drugs, <laughs> and uh, uh, which was an extraordinary detour through the psychedelic and psychoactive substances that seem to put people in touch with some higher level of being, uh, described in really quite beautiful detail. And now a new book um, called This Is Your Mind on Plants, which is really a discussion of three plants, the, uh, the poppy, that gave us opium, um, the coffee beans that gave us caffeine, and mescaline, which can be found all over the place. Um, and I wanted to start, Michael. Um, first of all, thank you uh, for coming. I'm very um, good to be here. I, I do this with everybody, and I'm going to make you go through it. <laughs> Tell me, um, where did you grow up, and, and what was your childhood like? I grew up in a town called Woodbury on Long Island. It was a suburb of New York. My dad commuted to the city. And, you know, it was one of those developments built in the early 60s, late 50s. Uh, so it was a classic American suburban um, background. Uh, but I had, a, I had a garden. I mean, that was uh, really important. Uh, I think starting when I was eight, uh, I planted a garden. Really? Which I referred to as a farm because I was hoping to make some money off it. Um, you know, some kids had lemonade stands. I had ambitions of being a farmer. What was that? What was in that garden? What did you first plant? Well, vegetables. Um, I was not interested in flowers. Like, why would you? Why would you grow anything that didn't have a kind of exchange value? Um, <laughs> it was very entrepreneurial. So this was um, not exactly a hippy dippy. Um, let's. That's 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 let's grow some flowers. It was more of a let's oh say, no 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 peppers, strawberries, green beans, um, and I would I would sell stuff to my mother. I mean, if I could manage to grow three or four strawberries, I'd put them in a Dixie cup and sell them to my mother. It was modeled on my grandfather's garden. I had a grandfather who he was a Russian immigrant, uh, came here in 1917, and began selling uh, produce from a cart in Hempstead on Long Island. And then got into the produce business and became a distributor and then became a real estate developer. And um, he always, uh, he never lost his love of fresh produce. And uh, he had a beautiful garden uh, at his house. It was, it was huge and orderly and, you know, never a weed or insect in sight. I'm sure he used every chemical available. <laughs> and, um, but my idea of a good time was going to his house and during at harvest time in August or September. And the whole idea that these plants would produce things of value from something, you know, from an inconspicuous seed, uh, I just found mind blowing. And uh, even if I didn't like tomatoes, the fact that other people did and they were growing here and I could just pick them. Um, so gardening was a big part of my my life. And, uh, you know, later it evolved and I got interested in flowers and I got interested in psychoactives and, and all the 
all these gifts of nature that you can harvest um, what is it continues about? to, to uh, astound me. What is it about gardening? I, I mean, I'm a, I, I have a little garden here in Provincetown, which I'm devoted to. And I got into a big kerfuffle today because some construction workers dumped a whole bunch of stuff on it. Uh, and I felt almost as if I had been violated myself. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was a construction site next door. Um, and, but when I tell people I love to garden, they look at me like I'm out of my mind. And, and, and I'm tr trying to, what is the, what is the, what is the Zen of gardening? As it were? What is, what, what makes you, and what do you enjoy most from gardening? Well, it is that making of something from nothing. Um, you know, there's the alchemists, uh, you know, appreciation of that process um, that you can make things happen. You know, I remember the first time I, I grew cannabis. I mean, it was amazing that, you know, you could just take this little seed that was in your in your little bag of pot and and, and more would come from it. Um, so there's that. There's something about the nature of the work that I find really agreeable. It's not intellectually demanding, but it's absorbing. And so your mind can wander. It's a great time to daydream. Uh, you can you're very present. Um, you there's a lot of margin of error. You're not going to, you know, I mean, compared to like carpentry, you're not going to cut a finger off. I mean, I have gotten a few injuries in the garden with secateurs and, you know, cutting my finger. I, I have been to the emergency room once or twice. Um, but I just love that meditative uh, rhythm of it, uh, whether you're weeding or planting. Um, and, you know, getting your hands in the dirt is just really primal. And, and we don't do it enough. And, and, and they're actually, we know they're good biological reasons to be exposed to all those bacteria and other microbes. Um, so I find uh, a day when I've spent time in the garden is, is almost always a good day. And it's sort of a way in which you interact with nature in a way that isn't just yeah. looking at it with a certain amount of awe or appreciating its beauty. You're actually you're, engaged actually an interface of the human with other things that are growing. And it's not, it has to, it has to go through time because it, 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 it changes and emerges as you do. So it's this very organic interaction between human and plant. Well, you know, when I first started writing, my first book was an essay of, uh, was a collection of essays uh, in, in my garden called Second Nature that I published back in the, I guess the 90s. Um, and, uh, when I started gardening, um, as an adult, I got into this war with a woodchuck uh, or groundhog that, um, you know, it was, I mean, it's very embarrassing to recollect. People think of me as a environmental writer, but I mean, I was, I got to the point of pouring gasoline down the furrow <laughs> of this woodchuck, <laughs> and, you know, almost defoliating my property when I threw a match in there. And um, uh, and it was making this this pest was making me absolutely crazy and challenging my sense of dominance as a creature. Uh, you know, I had the bigger brain. I had technology. What the fuck was this? <laughs> Why was this woodchuck getting the better of me and destroying my my plants? And I realized and I was kind of shocked into this realization when I almost did you know, defoliate a corner of my property, um, that the garden was a really rich place to examine our, what we refer to as our relationship with nature, which is a vexed term 
as it is. I mean, how can we have a relationship to nature? We are, we are nature. We are we in are nature, nature but, yes. but we don't feel that way. We feel like right. we have one foot in, one foot out. And that the garden might be more valuable as a venue in which to think about nature than the wilderness, which of course is the whole, you know, America has this beautiful tradition of wilderness writing. And we think the only place to think about nature is in the wild. Um, and so we have John Muir and we have, um, you know, Thoreau and Emerson, and they were all great. Even though Emerson was a gardener, he didn't write about gardening. He, he, he wrote about nature, you know, uninflected by humanity. And, um, that's a very, that spectator model is just really not realistic. We change nature. We have to change nature to survive. We, you know, it's it's very important to have wilderness, but we've put aside the 8% of the American landmass we're ever going to put aside. There's not going to be any more wilderness. I know there's this rewilding movement in England, but that's a different thing because you can't actually rewild. Um, and uh, so if we need to engage to feed ourselves to, to live on this planet, it's a, there are much more complicated questions you have to get into of what is the quality of that engagement? What morality or ethics should guide it? And I realized the garden was a better place to think about that and the farm. Uh, and, and for me, it was Wendell Berry who, who, who got me out of that box of nature or culture, you know, which really dominates American thinking, that it's a choice. Nature's obviously better. Um, but obviously you, you, you need to mix nature and culture. And, um, and so then how do you do it? So I think gardens are just really important as, as, uh, you know, literal places to think about our relationship to nature and metaphorically as a model for how to engage with the natural world. Yes, because it, it, it rids us, especially now in the Anthropocene era, of the illusion that we aren't yeah. actually in control. We have taken control. I remember one of the moments that really uh, in my life that I was like, wow, was when I realized that growing up in the British Isles, that not an inch of the British Isles yeah. existed that was wild, uh, and that even the countryside was actually a pacif pacified. That what you we know, think of as rural England is in fact extraordinarily human-dominated England. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, all of Europe is. I mean, there's not an inch that hasn't been worked over in some way. But a lot more of America is, too, of course. It's our failure to see the influence of Native Americans uh, on the landscape. And that when the when the English got to Massachusetts, they 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 imposed this idea that it was wild and wilderness because it was an unfamiliar landscape. It wasn't ordered the way their landscape was. So they assumed that there was no human mark on it. But of course, it was completely remade by Indians. Um, you know, they did controlled burning. They were, they were, there were lots of principles of selection going on that they failed to see. And William Cronin wrote about that brilliantly in a book called Changes in the Land. When I read that book, and I was living in New England at the time in Connecticut, um, I was, I suddenly, it was like putting on a new pair of spectacles that, you know, this landscape that I had thought was wild was the result not just of this Indian influence, but there was also complete deforestation for the uh, for the iron industry. I mean, all of New England was just you know no more trees, and uh, and and what we saw as this wild forest was this second or third growth uh, after the failure of the iron industry. So there's more history 
you know, Americans love not to see history. You know, we, we have blinders, so we don't see it. And but there's much more history in the landscape than we're than we're generally aware. And what I what I've really enjoyed about your writing is, for example, that you can see how a single plant can interact with a single human and then more humans can create culture, can 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 create civilizations in many ways and can can be an insight into the way human beings live. Let's, I mean, so for example, you're growing poppies. Yeah. Take the now. I happened to read that piece long ago because I, I, because I, that was one of the pieces so many people pointed to as a, as a model for writing about drugs, and I subsequently attempted my own attempt at, at writing about drugs. And then you see this little poppy, and it's just there, and and then you realize within it is this is this strange substance that mysteriously has all sorts of effects, not just. Uh, mentally or psychologically, but but existentially and spiritually, um, and then you realize that humans have known this for thousands and thousands yeah. of years, and then you begin to find out and think about how the Romans would drink tea of opium at, at funerals. To to uh, this is part of what they did. I don't know whether you did you did you know about the Temple of Eleusis, um, the, the the traditions of 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 the drinking of of of, of psychedelic uh, material as yeah, a kiki on um i i don't know if i knew about it when i wrote the opium piece which was originally published in 1997 in a different form i've since learned about it and uh and there's been some recent research uh done that suggests that um some derivative of ergot which is the fungus that is a precursor of lsd uh was found in communion cups in uh, spain which I think is really interesting. Um, it's, it's it's amazing to think that that transubstantiation might have other dimensions. Yes, the, the what the Catholics want to call sacramental, which is God within nature itself, is true. Yeah. Um, that, that, that in some senses, God seems to be in nature in some way. Um, well, that people would would consume these these substances in nature and see God and um, you know have that divine experience. I mean that the mystical experience can be occasioned by plants and and fungus um, does give a whole new twist to to what the Eucharist is about. Um, and and I think that's interesting. But your point about the poppy too. It isn't just nature. When you see a poppy, it it all already has that admixture of culture because it's been selected for certain qualities, certain colors, uh, greater strength, uh, you know, more opium in it. And so, even when we look at plants, uh, we're looking at reflections of ourselves to some extent. Um, you know, that this is their values bred into this. Uh, whether deliberately or strictly by, you know, just we always we always pick the biggest, fattest ones, you know. And what's interesting is obviously the, the feeling must be eternal. It must, the, 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 the feeling you get, say, for example, smoking opium, is the same feeling in ancient India as it would be in contemporary United States. And yet the way in which it reflects and interacts with culture can be so dramatically different. Um, well, yeah, the experience is phenomenologically the same, and that's kind of an interesting way to connect with people at other 
points in time that they were having this experience that we're having. On the other hand, the experience is also constructed to a large extent by expectation. So whether you put a religious uh, gloss on it or not may depend on your beliefs. Um, and if you if you travel to the beyond or the underworld, um, you know you could interpret that as a drug experience, you know, plain and simple, or as a spiritual experience. Um, and that has, and that's that's why Timothy Leary's concept of set and setting was, uh, you know, really important because um, the same the same physiological experience can can be interpreted in, in very different ways. The question that has always hovered around for me is what came first, the plant or the religion? Yeah, uh, the sense of uh, other consciousness or a higher consciousness. Let's call it that uh, rather than religion or are simply accidental stumbling across uh, these substances that gave us the inkling and the insight that we could conjure up in the abstract elsewhere without using the drug. What, what do, yeah. you have, do you have? I know it's unanswerable, but do you have some thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is good reason to believe that certain drug experiences, and I think psychedelics, I would put high in that list. Um, have contributed to cultural evolution by giving people visions that they then interpreted in many cases as evidence of the divine or evidence of a of an unseen world uh, of a higher consciousness and uh, with good reason I mean you know how else would you interpret some of these things I mean we have we can we can interpret it in terms of brains you know doing things um, but before science, before you know our our much more materialist, physicalist way of interpreting the universe, of course it seemed like uh, you know communication with with the divine or with some other realm. And um, so, so, of course, you would integrate it into sacraments and rituals. That would yeah, it, it makes much more sense than any other way to you know to interpret it. And so, I you know again, we can't prove this, but um, that the ingestion of certain plants and fungi helped inspire religion at some point seems like very plausible to me. I mean, I look at drugs as um, forces that provide kind of mutations in culture. They, they mutate, they create memes. Um, they create variation, new ideas, insights, metaphors. And most of them are stupid, you know? I mean, people have a lot of like dumb drug experiences. Um, but every now and then the encounter of one of those molecules with a mind produces an idea, an image, uh, an interpretation of, of how the cosmos works that, uh, and, and scientific breakthroughs and artistic breakthroughs, that it changes the course of cultural evolution. And so I think that uh, I think drugs are one of the forces that act on culture the way, say, solar radiation acts on our biology to produce variation and mutations. It's yeah, very I, it's very parallel. In my own life, I I I I have written things, and then I have had some kind of drug experience in which I have thought again about what I have written, and I have seen it in a completely different light. And in fact, I've often like figured out I missed something. Mm. Uh, and I need to go back and and put it in there. Uh, I'll give you one example of that. Yeah. Uh, was yeah. I, 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 when I wrote Virtually Normal uh, in 95, which was this very tightly argued 
case for gay marriage, essentially. It was mm-hmm. very logical. It took everything in its own space. And I and way before it's time. Yes, but it was also, I thought it was airtight. Mm-hmm. And, then I, and then I went dancing with MDMA. Uh, and halfway through the dance, I'm like, you know what? I, I haven't told the reader why I'm interested in this subject at all. Mm. He, the reader doesn't know why I care. So I have to write a little forward explaining my life and how it interacts with these arguments. And that remains by far the most popular part of the book. Um, <laughs> and it brought out stuff in me. Now, I wasn't writing while high, but the, the, and I think the key for me is that it takes your ego out a little bit. And it's mm. your ego that's preventing you from doing your best work. Well, our egos get in our way in so many ways, right? I mean, a lot of mental health difficulty are, are you know, tyrannical egos, um, you know, eroding our sense of self-worth or, or um, I mean, so I think one of the values of certain drugs, not all, because some are very ego encouraging. I mean, think of cocaine or even caffeine, right? These, these strengthen the ego consciousness, but psychedelics soften or weaken or eliminate it. And sometimes that's exactly what you need to see things in a fresh light because the ego enforces habitual ways of seeing yourself and seeing the world. And it, and it, and it tells these narratives, um, that are often just not helpful. Um, and so finding a path around the ego is, I mean, that's a, you know, a lot of psychotherapy is built around that idea. And, uh, but you can achieve that very quickly sometimes with a psychedelic. And that's, that of course is where the treatment of depression the treatment of addiction is going um, that that in some ways it gives you a little glimpse of the mountaintop and then you're always aware it's there if you can find it yes that's right uh, even if, even though it's a temporary form of consciousness having had a taste of it uh having known it's out there makes all the difference i mean uh, i find that with meditation i i really didn't understand meditation and i was really bad at it but after my psychedelic experiments, I, I got it. I said, oh, that's, that's kind of, that's the territory. That's where I want to get back to. And, you know, anytime you lay down a pattern in your mind, it's there and you can reinforce it by revisiting it or reenacting it. And, um, and so I agree. I think it's, it's uh, even though it's a, just a temporary rewiring of the brain, it, it sets up the possibility of laying down new new communications between different networks. And there were those interesting experiments uh, with psilocybin uh, comparing the state of the brain lit up with psilocybin and the brain that you can see operating uh, in monks and nuns who were spent decades in In meditation. meditation. Uh, Yeah, very similar brain networks are deactivated, the the default mode network in both cases. And that was one of the most surprising findings of early psychedelic research is that in both cases, this network that is, you know, if the ego has an address, that's where it is, right? In the default mode network, because it's it's the posterior cingulate cortex is where we construct those narratives of who we are and time travel is there, you know, which obviously is closely tied to identity. You have this past and this future. And uh, that network goes offline, uh, both in experienced meditators and uh, during uh, psilocybin experience. It's, it's one of the, I, I think, one of the more exciting findings of the research. Oh, it's incredibly exciting uh, in terms of what it might be able to do to help people 
in, in the future. The other thing, of course, is that these plants can interact with human history. Um, uh, and I'm curious, uh, a couple of things here. First is about uh, opium. Mm. Um, and we've, opium has been with us forever as humans. I mean, it seems to go back longer than any of the other plants. Am I wrong? Yeah. Does anything? Well, I mean, cannabis goes back pretty far yeah. too, but opium is, is a really important plant in human history because it was really virtually the only important drug in the pharmacopoeia, which was devoted to relieving pain, not really curing anything. So it was incredibly important. Yeah, and so what, what, what interests me as a question is, is there something that marks periods when opium uh, uh, absorption, opium use goes up, <laughs> when opium use goes down? I mean, I was thinking about this in terms of uh, your placement of caffeine is actually a kind of important point in the spark of the Industrial Revolution in England. Mm -hmm. And then I'm thinking, of course, that by the late 19th century, as they're all struggling with this trauma of industrialization, you then have a massive opium uh, boom um, in the late, uh, late 19th century, as if one historical process prompts another one. And we have these economic processes that are constantly interacting with plants. Yeah, and, and that they're woven into our history in a way we don't really see or pay attention to. There seems to be a, I mean, you could probably chart a rhythm between the stimulants and then the downers, right? And that too much <laughs> stimulants lead to interest in the downers. And, and my guess is that 19th century opium boom was a kind of reaction to the uh, industrial revolution in some ways. Um, but what's really cool about caffeine, uh, coffee and tea, is that it shows up in the West at a, at a it's very recent uh, historically compared to the other plants. Uh, it's the 1650s, tea, coffee, and chocolate arrive in England in the same decade. What a, what a decade, right? And we have a sense of before and after. So we can see the influence of one of these plant drugs in a way we seldom can, because opiums all and alcohol have always been part of the, the you know, the furniture of human life. Um, and and so what do we see? Well, we see some real changes that come about uh, with the introduction of caffeine. It displaces alcohol to a large extent. Um, it's not that people stop drinking, but they drank less and they didn't drink during the day quite the way that I mean. There was a time when people were drinking morning, noon, and night, right? You would you would even give your children hard cider because it was safer to drink than water. And um, so everybody was, you know, buzzed most of the time. And, and a lot of people were drunk most of the time, which, you know, okay, that's fine. But there's certain things you can't do very well. You know, double entry bookkeeping is not going to thrive if everybody's drunk. <laughs> And ditto, you know, operating heavy machinery. Um, you're also not going to be able to have a, a night shift uh, or an overnight shift because we were closely bound up with the rhythms of the sun and the circadian rhythms of the human body. So you, you only worked from sun up to sun down. The idea of working beyond that was nuts. Um, so suddenly you have this powerful tool that allow that detaches you from the rhythms of the sun. Uh, so you can, you know, drink more of it and stay up later. Uh, you have a drink that compared to alcohol um, leaves you really focused and sober. 
even though you're, it's an altered state of consciousness, but it's a very sober one. Um, so you can do your double entry bookkeeping and you can uh, work machines without having lots of accidents. Um, so I think it makes a critical contribution to the industrial revolution and to all modern work. Um, you know, one of the things that I found most interesting in my research was looking at the history of the coffee break. I mean, what an amazing institution that our employers give us a free drug and then paid time in which to enjoy it. <laughs> that tells you all you need to know. <laughs> what I loved about that chapter in a way was, um, is the way also in which caffeine re-socialized people. That the, the getting together in a pub with your mates and getting shit-faced is, is one way of associating. And it's a crucial part of the British lifestyle. It must yes, be the very day. Um, but coffee houses, we, we, we think of coffee houses as these very modern ideas. Suddenly, Starbucks arrived. And, but in fact, of course, coffee houses were probably the most important institution in regenerating uh, certainly intellectual and artistic and creative energy and some economic connections in the, in the 18th century. In, in, tell, tell, tell me more. Tell yeah. us more about that. Well, the institution of the coffee house is really kind of amazing, and especially in the way it differs from the tavern or the pub. Um, they were places just alive with conversation. And they were, they were, first they exploded in London. I mean, there was one coffee house for every 200 Londoners. That's an astonishing number of coffee houses. And, um, and they all had a different identity. There was a place you went if you were a scientist uh, where you would hang out, or if you were a writer, you went to another place. And if you were in business and, you know, the stock exchange, the London Stock Exchange begins in a coffee house uh, and people were trading. And, uh, and so does Lloyd's of London begins at Lloyd's Coffee House. Uh, if you wanted to take out a policy, an insurance policy on your shipment or your ship, um, and so, and then there were places where lots of political conversation got started. In fact, they were so threatening to the uh, to the uh, to Charles II that he tried to close them down. He thought that they were hotbeds of insurrection, and uh, and and indeed in France they became that. Um, you know, the storming of the Bastille. You know that that mob did not form in a tavern. It formed in a coffee house. Uh, it was very sober, um, but stimulated, and um, so. There's a, there's a quality to the social interaction of different drugs. Um, and MDMA is another, obviously, is a very specific kind of interaction. But that kind of interaction, which is, which is often argumentative, discussive, uh, mm -hmm. that is going to foment a greater communication between people of ideas and cross-pollination of ideas, a bit like the way the internet suddenly made all sorts of ideas that could jump very quickly from one place to another. And so it's kind of fascinating to see that as integral to the industrial revolution into the kind of yeah. ways in which people were rethinking the world and it gave them their kind of little magazines the other the other thing about them is that they were only for men well the magazine began in a coffee house um you know uh, was it the idler i forget what the, the first the tattler, magazine was. the tattler yeah and it was an attempt to put coffee house culture between in pages and it was organized like the different uh coffee houses um so I and agree. That's what, exactly what a magazine used to be, right? That's what it's, it's, it's a bunch of people who kind of have similar sensibility or, but nonetheless have enough difference that yeah. the conversation can be interesting. It's a and, community of interest um, that is willing to take in new information and new ideas. And, um, 
And that's what the coffee houses were. They were living magazines. And, um, and what's curious to me is, why don't we have that now in coffee houses? They're utterly silent places where people have headphones on <laughs> and they're, you know, working on the proposal for their startup, you know, on a laptop and never talking to one another. Um, so we've, we've kind of drained uh, that, the culture from the coffee house. Because all that caffeine is going into like uh, uh, pathological tweeting, <laughs> which is which is not the same thing, and 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 but also critically, um, I think taverns were open to everybody, right? I mean, women as well. Yeah, as they were. Well, the not coffee? women. Oh, really? Um, yeah, so it taverns? wasn't everybody, but there was. Uh, it was a place where classes could mingle. There were not different rooms for different classes as you had in some pubs. Um, but people of any class could mingle, but they were all men. And this was a, a, a real problem. And women complained about the coffee houses. Um, there was a, a wonderful manifesto that women got together to write about how coffee was robbing men of their masculinity. And that uh, the, what was it, how'd the line go? There was a very funny line about the only thing stiff was uh, when they, when people got home from the coffee. I forgot what it was. Yeah, no, I'm very sure that. I'm just trying to come but, it, um, it was hilarious. Yes, it's obviously women lamenting that caffeine is not exactly going to make them their husbands horny. Uh, no, it was, and they were much more interested in one another and and the and their topic of interest, um, and uh, which is you so, know another difference from alcohol. Some historians have also seen in those coffee houses the the beginnings of of, of of gay culture, that, that the Molly houses, they were called Molly houses because some of those coffee houses attracted uh, people of a certain kind. Interesting. And foppish, they were called Mollies. They had a certain, a certain way of, uh, of looking. And so the, 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 out of those coffee houses also came a nascent homosexual community um, high, hidden within the coffee house structure. Uh, but even began to acquire a different name, like the Molly House is what they Fascinating. called it. Fascinating. Fascinating. So we, we think of gays as meeting in bars, but in fact, they started originally kind of in coffee, houses. In coffee houses to chat. Um, You're right to think of it as a kind of um, med medium or technology, though, because there was uh, there were also people who would go from one coffee house to another, spreading information and gossip and rumors. So you had these nodes, but they were networked together, and um, uh, so they were, you know, in some ways like the internet of of its time. Um, and now, of course, you 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 have coffee in the morning, marijuana to go to bed, um, or beer or whatever to go to bed. Um, so, 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 do you think there's any meaning socially behind the fact that we are going through in our own country a period in which it seems to me a large number of struggling working class people are using opioids in a way that really hasn't been seen for a hundred years or so, um, and and the middle and upper middle classes, the the explosion of marijuana, of cannabis, which has been probably as dramatic as the increase in opioid use, except it's so great that it's now just been legalized, which is just compounding it. Does that tell us anything about where we are at this point in history? Well, the other thing that's happening too is there's an explosion in use of psychedelics um, you know, that's going on. It's gone up dramatically in the last couple of years. Um, 
I think a lot of working class people are also using cannabis. And there's some evidence that the places where cannabis is legal, there's less opiate use, um, which is interesting. Um, opiate, you know, the geography of the opioid crisis, uh, if you look at it, it's lots of red states where people's economic prospects are terrible. I mean, people refer to these as deaths of despair, these overdoses. There's also high rates of alcoholism in these places. So I think it has to do with the conditions of people's lives. Um, you know, uh, I just did this piece for the Times on on the you know what happens after the drug war, and and I looked at this whole question of addiction, and um, I you know I had a pretty primitive understanding of addiction. I thought it was all a property of the chemicals, and that opium was especially or opiates were especially addictive. But it is um, really a property of people's lives, and uh, to say addiction is not may not be a disease so much as a symptom of disease. A symptom of, of misery and and uh, disconnection and uh, uh, Johann Hari's book, um, which I'm sure you've you've looked at, uh, is chasing the stream. Yeah, and, is lost, there, is and, it... and lost connections too. Um, yes, and I, you know I think he's got I think he has the right idea. And in that book, he he talks about these uh, the Rat Park experiment. Um, I don't know if you remember it, but yeah. it 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 it's one of those sort of um, factoids that that flips your thinking about something. I mean, most of what we know or think we know about addiction is based on these experiments with rats isolated in cages, given a choice between two levers, one of which administers cocaine or morphine to their veins, the other sugar water, and they'll press the cocaine or morphine until they're addicted or dead. But this uh, psychologist in British Columbia way back in the 70s was like, well, maybe this has to do with the cage. <laughs> so, so he set up what he called a rat park, a really nice cage. Uh, it was much bigger. It had toys. You had uh, other rats to play with or have sex with. You had really good food. And they were much less interested in the morphine. They had a little bit of it, but not enough to get addicted. And um, so it made you realize that addiction might be an adaptation to one's circumstance. Um, rather than a property of these these chemicals, um, and you need, of course, both. You need the chemical and the and the, the the fertile soil for it to take root in. But fact is, you know, eighty ninety percent of people can use even hard drugs without becoming addicted. And um, and the other story uh, Hari tells is, um, uh, you know, in Vietnam, ninety twenty uh, percent of of soldiers were addicted to heroin, American soldiers. I mean, it was an incredible problem. They were using heroin daily. Um, and everybody worried when they got home, uh, we'd have this, you know, wave of heroin addicts on our on our streets. But in fact, 95% of them were able to stop like this when they got home, even without treatment. Um, why? Because the circumstances that made them need heroin there weren't present here. So, you know, I think we have to look at the condition of people's lives uh, as much as we, we look at these evil chemicals. And you also, I mean, one of the things that I found fascinating in <clears throat> researching about opium was that, in fact, plenty of people lived their whole lives smoking opium. And it was, it was a particularly difficult drug to control, but plenty of people did control it in small quantities. And, and people like William Wilberforce, I mean, serious public figures, not only were using it, but were publicly known to use it. Um, there was no stigma against it whatsoever. 
No, that comes late. And you know, all the people also, you know, the 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 uh, these the potions, the women's tonics, all these over-the-counter drugs had opium in them or cannabis. And um, women would sip these every day. They were addicted to opium. Um, you know, I, I think people assume that as soon as you get involved with some of these chemicals, you're on this inevitable downward spiral. But in fact, if you have a steady supply and it's not contaminated, um, people can go on. Um, and Especially if you're interacting with them in a, in a natural way with natural doses. I mean, the, the, the way in which the, the, the drug war itself, but also chemical manufacturing intensifies and concentrates yeah. the subject. So, so to smoke to smoke opium in the 19th century is not like doing fentanyl heroin yeah, or fentanyl. Uh, no, and it's and there is a there's an argument made that that taking drugs in their natural form um, is generally going to be safer. And you're right; it is the drug war that forces the intensification. I mean, what happened to cannabis is is very much the result of the fact that you had to uh, you wanted to get as much bang for your buck in every, you know, every ounce of it. Um, so you bred it and bred it and bred it until it was much more intense than it had been. Uh, ditto the difference between chewing coca leaves, which, um, you know, Wade Davis and uh, um, Andrew Weil have pointed out is, is used by, you know, millions of people in South America without a problem. Um, uh, yet, cocaine, white powder cocaine, people get into trouble with. Um, so some of it is romance of the natural form of things. And there are great drugs made in labs, um, all of which is true. But there is there may be something protective in using, say, uh, the mushroom as it comes in a mushroom or the coca as it comes in the or the poppy tea, you know, that comes from the, the head of the uh, Papaver somniferum. This gets me back to gardening in a way, because mm -hmm. it seems to me the model that you're pioneering in a way, I wouldn't say that's too dramatic a word, but that you're intimating, let's put it that way, is that our relationship with quote unquote drugs, if we deconstruct it into our relationship with plants and with the natural world, we should be far better off to engage with them as if we were gardening them, as if they were part of our natural world, which we also have a part in, and they can help us as we help them. And in fact, we've been incredibly good to these plants, like coffee has never known. I mean, it's yeah. humans have created. We've done a lot for coffee. <laughs> and a huge amount for poppies and a massive amount for marijuana plants. Um, the wheat, for all these things, we have been. And, so, and, and part of the question you raise in the book is also. Well, we're, we are their servants. I mean, right. How much point. are we using them and how much are they yeah. using us? Well, they are using us. Um, you know, when corn, I wrote about this in The Omnivore's Dilemma, when I realized the entire basis of our food system was corn, uh, you know, industrial number two commodity corn, which is the basis of all the processed food, the high fructose corn syrup, the all the meat is fed corn, um, that we are being used by corn to expand its range and that we don't see this. Um, it's a two-way street. We use them, but they use us too. And that's our arrogance that we fail to see this, you know, that, and we think plants are stupid. Um, they're incredibly smart. Um, they just, smart means something different to them. The, they're the they're better at chemistry a, than we are. 
the flowers that have a little bit of caffeine in their nectar. Yes. So that <laughs> Tell is that story. That's yeah, that was one of the most amazing things I learned when when writing about caffeine. So caffeine in nature is a pesticide, like a lot of the alkaloids that that are drugs. They're substances that the plants produce because they can't run away, right? Plants are stuck in place. So instead of having locomotion, consciousness, language, they really focused hard on chemistry and neurochemistry in particular. So they make these chemicals that uh, to repel or attract um, insects and other, and other uh, creatures. Um, caffeine in nature is a pesticide uh, and it is um, harmful to insects that eat it in quantity. It also discourages other plants from growing nearby. Uh, the leaves, the caffeinated leaves fall on the ground and it kind of poisons the ground for other really? plants. Yeah. And, um, but plants are, you know, I mean, Paracelsus said, you know, the dose makes the poison. And what might be poisonous at high doses has much more interesting effects at low doses. Caffeine is a great example. So certain classes of plants, including the citrus class, figured out along the way that if they produced caffeine in their um, nectar, which is designed to attract, it would attract bees. We first discovered that the caffeine was in the nectar, and we thought that was weird because it's it's a pesticide. Why would you want to poison the bees? But it turns out it's at it's at a dose where the bees really like it, and um, bees are attracted. They will prefer flowers that give them a little buzz of caffeine, although we don't know if they feel anything. Um, they will remember that flower better. They will return to it more faithfully. And that's what the scientists said, makes them more faithful pollinators. And um, and how brilliant of these uh, of these plants to, to figure out they can manipulate the mind of the bee and actually improve their memories. Um, so caffeine makes bees better workers. Um, and of course, that's exactly what it does for us. Uh, we're, you know, it, they're, caffeine manipulates us exactly as it manipulates the bees. And you know, the bee is a great example because the bee is like us. You know, I, I, you watch a bee pollinating an apple tree or something like that, and 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 they're you know breaking into the blossom and getting the getting the nectar, and you know they think they're getting the best of the deal, right? Um, that they're robbing this tree. Little do they know that they're you know that their thighs are being powdered with pollen, and that they are they've been manipulated into going to that tree in order to do the work that the plant can't do, which is use an animal to spread its genes. Um, and we're in the exact same relationship to these plants. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, I have a lot of respect for plants. Um, I think we don't give them nearly enough credit, although there seems to be this kind of moment. Uh, did you read the uh, the Overstory, Richard Powers' book, uh, novel? Oh, it's no, so it's a fantastic novel. Okay. It's a story about people and plants in a way, trees, great, you know, redwoods. Um, but in a weird way that you've never seen outside of science fiction, he displaces the human and the trees become more important. Um, and uh, anyway, it's, I, I think it's a, it, it represents a real change of consciousness, this book. I've always... And, and it's based on research, really interesting research um, done by a woman in uh, British Columbia named Suzanne Samard, who has a new book out also. Um, 
where she was able to demonstrate that the trees in a forest are much more sociable than we ever knew them to be and that they're they're conveying nutrients and messages back and forth using these networks of mycelium of mushrooms uh, to do so um so the individuality we, you know we, we look at trees and we see that you know the noble individual um but in fact like us much more social much more crucially social than we like to think and th and that you know the the crude version of darwinian evolution has taught us and we humans i mean I become attached to a tree in a way that I wouldn't to any other physical object. Uh -huh. uh, maybe there are a few beautiful buildings that you would hate to see taken down, but I find, just personally speaking, and this happened my memory from childhood when I lived in a, uh, in, a, in a woodland, near a woodland, and they were developing stuff, and they cut these trees down. Now, I felt absolutely violated. It felt like I grew up with these trees and I'd watched them grow. Yeah. And there was something about the connection between them growing and our being there and seeing them there that creates a very special relationship between humans and trees, even though we've been a disaster for them globally, right? I mean, yeah, but they're figures yeah. in the landscape like we, they're upright. And um, I think it's, it's natural to identify with them. And they have this paternal or maternal flavor too because they're bigger than we are you know we look up at them as we did our parents when we were little and um yeah and and anyway the richard powers novel captures some of these emotions about trees uh beautifully to get back to doses um almost everyone drinks coffee you you made yourself i mean that's one of the things you <laughs> was fascinating you'd never taken any of the psychedelic drugs you described until you'd researched them and then at the end try to figure out how you felt when you were going through them. Equally for this, you decided to write about caffeine by, by stopping cold, uh, you know, a cold end to your caffeine. And that, was, that must have been absolutely brutal, right? It was really hard. So how, first of all, how was that? And secondly, you now... I'm, I'm going to check in on you. You said you were only drinking caffeine, fully caffeinated coffee on a Saturday. And what's and today? You are, <laughs> you, with a Starbucks in your hand. You, 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 it's like me talking about meditation. I mean, just, yeah, busted, <laughs> busted, busted. No, that the Saturday thing didn't work out. So, so <laughs> I'll explain why addiction is very seductive. It is. Um, it is. So, Stopping, so I went cold turkey on caffeine. I did it to understand my relationship to caffeine and also to see what it would be like to try caffeine as a virgin, um, you know, with a, a body that wasn't accustomed to it. Um, because we develop a tolerance for all drugs uh, or almost all drugs. And, um, and I wanted to reacquaint myself with its power, and, um, which I did. Um, but getting there was really hard. Um, I found that. Without caffeine for the first several weeks, I could not write. I could not concentrate. Uh, I just felt like I had acquired attention deficit disorder. Um, the, the, the periphery kept intruding, um, you know, information, senses, whatever. I just could be so easily distracted. Um, and so focus was impossible. And focus is essential to writing. I mean, writing is a process of taking, you know, the three dimensional multiplicity of life and and forcing it down that narrow linear path of sentences and paragraphs and 
forget it. That wasn't happening. I, I felt like I had a muzziness uh, for the first week. Uh, just I felt like there was a, a veil between me and reality. I wasn't I wasn't present to it in the way I normally am. But to and it got better, and I started writing again and uh, was functional. Um, really missed it. Um, but felt the entire time I was not myself. And I thought that was really curious, that to be myself, I needed this plan. And, and the self I was without it was not recognizable. And that's because I'd been using caffeine since I was like 10 years old. It, it was my default. It was my default everyday consciousness. And what I thought was transparent, just life as it appeared, was actually the product of this slightly altered state. Um, so I, there were very few benefits. The only benefit, only really important benefit besides a sense of self-righteousness that I'd kicked an addiction, <laughs> which is, you know, as that's a, why you, you have know, to endure the humiliation now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're making up for that. No, the, the benefit was I slept like a teenager. I had some really good sleeps. Um, you know, as we get older, the quality of our sleep declines and we, we wake up a lot more. And I was just sleeping through the night. And uh, that was great. And, and caffeine does mess with your sleep, your slow wave sleep, uh, which is very important kind. And um, uh, but other than that, it was all uh, negative. And um, I look forward to the day I could get back on it. And it did not disappoint. Um, I have to say that first cup of coffee after three months off was psychedelic. Um, it was a powerful experience and, um, and wonderful. I mean, just had, I, I, it started with this wave of well-being. Like I could feel the caffeine fanning out, you know, it enters every single cell in your body. And, uh, and I felt that happen. And then I felt, I had the sense of euphoria and, um, it was great. And then I had this energy for the rest of the day or half the day to get shit done. And, um, <laughs> you know, I cleaned my closet. I unsubscribed from annoying listservs on my email. I did things I would never do on a Saturday. Um, yeah, that's, it's sort of like having Adderall and crystal meth all at once. And, uh, <laughs> it, uh, was, like, it was amazing. And, um, uh, and so I was... It's, it's good to have coffee every day. It's, it, I mean, yes, I, I, I understood and read the the dangers to deep sleep that some people may have so but in the morning it seems to me a daily good cup of coffee in the morning is, is actually kind of good for you it has lots of uh oh there are lots of benefits um yeah. there you antioxidants know, I, mainly right i i looked at the whole um research uh picture around coffee and tea and the benefits uh are are Notable. I mean, it's protective against several different kinds of cancer, protective against cardiovascular disease, protective against um, dementia and Parkinson's. It's, it's kind of remarkable. And you're right. It's probably not the caffeine. It's, it's probably the antioxidants in coffee and tea. Um, one of the more striking facts that I came across um, was the fact that the biggest source of antioxidants in the American diet come from coffee. <laughs> which tells you how few vegetables we're eating, right? Um, that, you know, you need to eat plants for antioxidants, polyphenols. These are really important compounds to get in your body. We don't eat the plants that make them virtually at all. Um, but we do, we do consume coffee and tea, and that's what's saving us. 
I want to take you back to that garden when you were on psilocybin for a minute. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, and your attempt to understand, I think, uh, why these substances uh, in different ways, but evoke the same core sense of oneness and also love. Uh, one can imagine a world in which that is not what these drugs make you feel. But also, you seem to be verging on the edge of believing, in fact, that this love does exist outside of us somehow, and that these plants somehow manage to get us better in touch with it, that, that there is something mysterious here that is not just chemicals. And that's quite a lot for you to say. I, 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 thought, it was, I thought you were inching towards a sort of uh, a spiritual uh, yeah. insight there. Uh, tell, tell, tell me how you, has it, has, it, has it changed your perspective on religion or spirituality? And consciousness. Um, yeah. I mean, I had an experience in my garden that I think you're alluding to of, uh, on psilocybin. And, you know, as a writer, we, I mean, we've been talking about since Botany of Desire, I've had this keen sense of that the plants have their own subjectivity right? That they're, they're a kind of personhood. They're not conscious the way we are. They're not self-conscious, but they have objectives. They're actors in, their, in the drama of the garden. Uh, they're not passive. And uh, they're not mere objects that we work on. Um, but this was an intellectual conceit. I understood this intellectually. I, I, I couldn't say I felt it in my heart. Um, and then I had this experience of a fairly high dose of psilocybin walking through my garden, August, uh, dragonflies everywhere, everything in bloom, pollinators going crazy. It was just like Grand Central Station, you know, it's just a lot going on. And um, I felt the presence of these plants as subjects in a way I never had before, that they were in some sense returning my gaze. Um, and that I was more a part of this scene than I had ever felt. You know, even though we create these gardens, we still feel like we're not in nature the way the plants are or the groundhogs or the, or the insects, um, that we're slightly outside. Um, I didn't feel that at all. I felt like one species among many. I felt very connected. We were all going about our, our life project together. Uh, engaging with one another. And um, it was the least alienated I had ever felt from nature. Uh, and that was, that was extraordinary. It was, a, it was a wonderful experience, a little spooky. Um, and, you know, you never know how to credit these experiences. Um, and, and especially if you're like skeptical, you're a skeptical journalist or you're a materialist in your general outlook. Um, for me, you know, I, I say somewhere in How to Change Your Mind that I, I regarded myself as kind of spiritually retarded. Um, you know, it just hasn't been a big part of my life. I, I, I have a very much of a kind of materialist view of things. Um, and I believed, I assumed that spirituality assumed uh, a belief in the supernatural, something that couldn't be explained by the laws of physics or nature. And um I, I, I realized I had that wrong, at least for me, and that what spirit, the opposite of spiritual is not um, material. Um, the opposite of, 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 of spiritual is egotistical. It's, and that it is 
breaking out of that ego consciousness. You know, egos build walls. They're 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 this cage we're in. They're very useful tools. They get you know, they get our work done. Um, they they help us in all sorts of ways. Um, but they disconnect us. They 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 cause us to objectify the other. Uh, you, you know, and not just plants, by the way, people too. Um, you know, it's the I it versus the I thou idea of, of Buber. And um, and the thou became present to me in a way it had never been before. And um, so I came to understand spirituality is not necessarily having anything to do with the supernatural, but having to do with powerful connection. Um, and uh, And that I think is, uh, a, a very commonly reported feeling after a psychedelic experience that you feel connected to nature, to the universe, to other people. Uh, and the nature of that connection is love. And, um, and that to me is how I understand spiritual experience is those moments when you transcend ego and connect in a really deep way. And it can be with an individual, it can be with a tree, it can be with, you know, the universe or your concept of the divine, whatever it is, it's, it's about connection. And, um, and so that's a very important lesson that I credit to this humble mushroom. <laughs> and isn't that amazing, right? I, that, that, I, you'd get, that you'd learn something from a mushroom. Right. right. Well, it's, a, it's an act in human humility, really, to, to see that. And you, you, you put it very interesting there. You said... Um, I, I've never felt less alienated from nature. And yet earlier you also said, well, we are nature. You're, you're really yeah. saying I, I was less alienated from myself, yeah. from who I am as part of nature. Well, um, I think ego consciousness um, encourages us to think of ourselves as separate and superior. And it is what allows us to act on nature, to, to take down forests, to dig giant holes, to find gold, to do all the shit we do. Um, if you have a more animated sense of nature, as Native Americans do, for example, those acts become acts of violence. Um, but if you can objectify nature, which our egos allow us to do, do whatever you want. Um, so I think that, you know, the interesting question is, is if this kind of consciousness about nature can be nurtured by these chemicals, could they, with wider use, change our culture's attitude toward nature? And I think that's, there's a lot of people in the psychedelic community for whom this is an animating belief. I think it needs to be tested. I think most of the people who are having these experiences are, are already inclined to, you know, environmental outlook. Um, you know, would the Koch brothers react the same way? Would Donald Trump react the same way? I, we'll I just, almost don't we'll want just, to find out. We'll get them to Burning Man and, 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 and figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, and you get at this with caffeine, is there's a sense that, for example, a drug like caffeine, which create, helped spark and generate the intellectual ferment that, that created, talk about an ego uh, yeah. kind of drug, that helped us conquer the planet. Uh, and we are in an era when we're beginning to fully reckon with the consequences of that conquest, that in some ways what these drugs are doing is asking us to consider that we have made a terrible mistake and to start unwinding it. In other words, that the Native Americans were better off in their understanding of 
their relationship with nature, and maybe even sort of medieval Europeans, uh, pre-modern Europeans, the sense you get also from their from their philosophy, from their theology, from natural law, from from their spirituality is is so much greater connection with the world. I think of, for example, caffeine, as you point out, breaks our understanding that we get up with the sun and we go down. Yeah. Uh, the sun goes down. And in some ways, that's a sort of symbol of our rebellion. Our separation from nature. Yes. And I think that, that, that substances like caffeine or cocaine that, that um, you know, strengthen egos, essentially, um, I think they're, they're, they're similar in, in certain ways, do tend to lead to this objectification of everything else. Uh, everything's instrumental. Everything is to be used, and um, uh, and that psychedelics pull us in the other direction toward reanimating the world. And once you've reanimated it, suddenly the moral and ethical uh, issues raised by you know chopping down trees or 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 you know all the different things we do to nature, suddenly you have to reckon with that. You you need to fold it into your cosmology. Like why do why do I have the right to do this if that's another living thing? And um, uh, yeah, and traditional cultures never lost that. Um, and that is one of, the th one of the many things they have to teach us. Um, I also think they have a lot to teach us on the safe and productive use of psychedelics, um, you know, which is why I wanted to write about mescaline. Um, that you know, as, as the drug war nears an end, which I think it is, um, we're going to be left trying to figure out how best to fold these substances into our lives and into our culture. And it's not immediately clear how to do that well. Um, it's going to be, uh, it'll, it'll come out of cultural experience and conversation, but there is a model, there is an instruction manual, and that's how traditional cultures use psychedelics. And so we learn things from them like, well, don't use them alone. Um, best to have an elder around, somebody who knows the territory. Um, do it with intention. Don't do it casually. And um, surround it with ritual. Drugs that are used in a ritual way are not the kind, you know, that's not, that's not how people get in trouble with drugs. Even alcohol, when it's used in a ritual way, uh, is safer than when it's used in a wanton way. And, and with psychedelics, you don't even have the impulse to keep using them. No, they're not habit forming. God knows. The last you really thing, don't. It's such a it's such hard work in a way. It's such a big experience that your first reaction is, "Do I ever have to do this again?" And um, uh, and we know they're not habit forming. If you put them in that, going back to that cage, the rat in the cage, you give them some LSD on that level and lever, and they'll only press it once. They'll never press it again. Um, so, no. What's interesting and, and quite surprising about drugs as powerful as uh, LSD or psilocybin is that they're not habit forming. They're also virtually non-toxic. Um, you know, there's, there's no known lethal dose of either of them, whereas the Tylenol in your medicine cabinet has a lethal dose of around 20 pills. Um, so they do have risks without question. They have psychological risks, but uh, well, not physiological risks. The, the dosage and the natural use. I mean, you can you could have uh, smoked opium, but you would be you would have fallen asleep before you could be overdosed. That's right. Um, That's right. Or same and, with poppy tea. I don't think you could consume enough to. Uh, yeah. To or overdose. indeed, 
that's always the argument about weed, which is that, you know, it's, it's, you'll fall asleep. And right. I mean, the argument against the super powerful strains is simply, well, you'll smoke less of them. Yeah. Although with Except, edibles, you can overcome that, right? You could, oh, yes. You, you yes, could yes, consume too much. That's why I don't ever do edibles. Yeah. Um, but I, now tell me, I, I have a strong cup of coffee or four in the morning. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and I, I have one joint uh, uh, an hour before I go to bed. Um, and, uh, that's, I've done that now for like maybe 20 years. Um, and so they are part of my your routine, uh, not yeah. just my routine, but they've, they've come to affect my life. I mean, that's how it, it works. Uh, and I've wrestled with this, you know, I am obviously, I'm addicted to the caffeine clearly mm -hmm. in some basic level, the cannabis, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's, I'm definitely dependent on it yes i think i'm probably addicted to it yet people tell me that i can't really be addicted to cannabis what, well what's your you know addiction can be i mean you can be addicted to your phone right you can be addicted <laughs> well, to twitter that, that i am yes. yeah so but that's not in the physiological way that you know that that pharmacologists measure, you know, tolerance, increasing tolerance. Do you need more of it over time? Do you suffer withdrawal when you don't have it? I don't know that people suffer withdrawal to, uh, you know, when they take cannabis out of their, their lives, um, they might miss it. Um, but you're, you know, you're laying down all these other habits that, you know, you associate a good night's sleep with that joint. Um, but it may not be a physiological addiction the way uh, caffeine is. Caffeine is a physiological addiction. But, you know, we, we, we should remember that we, we moralize these things, you know, in a way that isn't um, necessarily right. We should question that, that we, you know, the same reason I felt self-righteous because I kicked caffeine. So what? I mean, if this isn't doing damage to your life, there's nothing wrong with it. And you can afford it and it's not illegal. Um, and, and the line is so arbitrary at times, isn't it? Because, I mean, we, we, we consume substances all day long. And we, we create this little weird moment where we say those aren't, those aren't legit. Yes. Well, we, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much, and, it, and it's changing, of course. I mean, you know, the, the, it's constantly changing. I mean, you know, I, in the opium piece, I talk about uh, prohibition. And, and right now in my garden, I can break federal law by uh, growing an opium poppy and 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 having the intention of turning it into a schedule substance. How is that intention proven? Well, if I slid it, you would that would prove the intention. Or in fact, if I had a copy of, of a book called Opium for the Masses telling me what to do with it, um, this is crazy. And uh, but I was growing it on a farm that I bought in Connecticut, where the farmer was very well known during prohibition for producing the best Applejack in town, alcohol. And he was he could do the same thing. He could cross over into the country of illegality without ever leaving his property simply by distilling his apples his apple juice. Um, and you know, and then everything flipped. And it's I can produce all the wine or Applejack I want, um, but I can't produce opium. And back then you could produce opium and uh, and sell it. So I think we have to understand the fundamental arbitrariness of these distinctions. And, and what we're witnessing now with psychedelics is they're undergoing a transformation from being this evil and disruptive force, uh, you know, and, and all the kind of 60s baggage attached to them as uh, disruptive, you know, 
causing the anti-war movement, whatever it is, um, to now becoming tools to help us deal with the mental health crisis. And so the, the criteria, I think, is whether a drug substance is lubricating the machinery of modern life at that time, um, you know, helping capitalism uh, or hindering it, um, or is it, uh, you know, or yeah, or is it a problem? Is it is it mucking up the gears? Um, psychedelics were mucking up the gears in the 60s uh, in a way that many of us think was good, um, but you could see why the powers that be thought otherwise. Um, Nixon really thought that LSD was uh, inspiring American boys not to do what they always do, which is march off to war when you tell them to. And um, so it was a threat. Um, but now it's, it's mental health is such a big problem and the tools that we have to, to treat it are so lousy that I think we're about to see a shift and psychedelics and will be celebrated as, um, as, as beneficial to society. Well, the twist there, of course, is that the uh, psychedelics could help people get off the opioids. Yes, but, and, and alcohol and, and, and cigarettes. I mean, I think one of the really interesting avenues of research, and, and it may be one of the most productive, is the use of psilocybin to break addictions. Um, that the, These drugs seem very good for breaking habits of all kinds. Uh, and a lot of uh, mental illness is about either habitual behavior addiction or, or eating disorders too, uh, or habitual thought, such as anxiety and depression, rumination. You had um, that gorgeous metaphor in uh, How to Change Your Mind of ketamine, um, of the, 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 the mountain. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That was, that was uh, psilocybin. Um, oh, was it so, oh, forgive me. Yeah, no, no. It, it was the, a Dutch. The, the white, the the white power of the snow might have... Uh, right. <laughs> might have, Mis misdirected me. <laughs> yeah, he said that um, if you think of your your mind as a hill and and the thoughts as the sleds going down the hill, it was only a hill because he was Dutch. There were no mountains where he uh, he grew up. <laughs> um, and that after a while, there's so many grooves from the sleds that you can't go down the hill without slipping into one of them. They're attractors. Right. And, uh, and that's getting older, right? I mean, we, 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 we repeat our thought patterns, our algorithms over and over and over again, because they, they work, they get us down the hill. Um, and he said, think of, think of psilocybin as, an, as a fresh snowfall that fills all the grooves and gives you the freedom to go down the hill on a new path. That was a beautiful metaphor. Um, Mendel Kalin is his name. Well, thanks for attributing it correctly to the right <laughs> drug. Um, uh, Michael, it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. Um, I want to thank you. I mean, I think you played an important role. I really do in making psychedelics respectable. I mean, you, the, it, it was so hard, for example, to write about them and, and tout their importance in a way that you could always be dismissed as you're a pothead, you're, you're, yeah. you're a stoner, you're, you're, you go to Burning Man, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we needed someone with, the utmost rectitude in a way. And who wasn't part uh, of that community, I think. I think that was really key. I was, I was a newbie. I was coming in from outside. I was skeptical. I was afraid. And I think that that gave the reader a place to stand where they could look over at this world without committing initially. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was, I was surprised that um, people would take it seriously. <laughs> 
And, um, and I also realized that the work I had done on food and nutrition um, had, in, in the minds of some people, gave me a certain authority on questions of health. I don't know why it should have. It, mental health is well, very different. They're, they're also, I mean, I can flatter you anymore, but because they were really good, but also just simply for uh, someone who was such an expert on food and nutrition to treat these substances, because they are things we put in our bodies, exactly, uh, was itself destigmatized the topic. It, it itself, it kind of brought it down to earth and told us that these these are these are part of the world and uh, and they're not some alien other world that that we can't ever touch for fear of society breaking down. It yeah. may be the only way we're going to keep the society together at this point. They could uh, be critical. They could be critical tools. And uh, I'm glad they're getting a second look. Um, you know, as I mean, you know, as a journalist, we're we're not visionaries. We, you know, maybe we see around one corner if we're lucky. <laughs> and in fact, we don't succeed if we see around too many corners because nobody will know what the hell we're talking about. Um, but there was a wave. I felt it in the air. This research was so encouraging that, hey, there's there's something here. And if and it was going to I think it was going to happen regardless. And I mean, I hope I hastened it in some ways. Um, but the scientists really deserve the credit for the courage of, you know, they risked their reputations to study psilocybin and MDMA. And, uh, and they proved the value. Uh, and I was, I was amplifying their voices as much as anything else. You were, but you were also able to use the English language in a way they couldn't. And um, with no offense to them, <laughs> everyone has their everyone has their skill set. That's um, true. But uh, uh, and I'll, I'll say this to readers again: I have never ever heard anyone describe uh, drug experiences as accurately or as interestingly as Michael did in his 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 book, How to Change Your Mind. And now this is your mind on plants. You won't think of coffee the same way ever again, even though I'm now recommitted to having it every day. Um, but I have, and, and you, you have, have a benediction, by the way. <laughs> I have a coffee cup of coffee usually every 4.30 or 5. Uh, uh, but, um, but then I knock myself out with the weed. With the so it kind of maybe balances it all out in I the end. I think it's working for you. <laughs> okay, well, lovely to talk to you, Michael. A real pleasure to meet you. I'm sorry we haven't met before in our lives, but... Uh, well, Thank I hope we get a chance on. to do it in person next. All right, brother. Thank you so much. Take Be well. Bye-bye. Bye. Next week. Well, not next week. I can't remember what we have. Oh, I know we have next week. But we do have Michael Lewis coming up uh, on the podcast. Uh, pretty wonderful guest to have. And uh, we'll be talking to him henceforth. Uh, thank you, Michael. We'll see you all next week. Bye. <laughs>